Here we go. Three seconds left. 28-yard field goal from the middle of the field towards the tunnel. Sanborn, the snapper. Mormon, the hole. The kick is up. The kick is good. And the Bills have defeated the New England Patriots. They have beaten the Patriots. They have ended the streak. They are first place in the AFC East. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. It's about time. Welcome to episode number 44 of the Sportscasters. It is September 27th, 2011, here in a very jubilant Buffalo, New York. Absolutely. My name is Steve Bennett, and my co-host is Don Russ. How are you doing today, Don? Couldn't be better. We are on the heels here of a two-show week. We had episode number 44. Two with Jay Clemens from the National Football Post and Damon Hack from Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. And we had episode number 43 with Kerry J. Byrne and uh, Joe Lemire. And one of the main topics with Kerry J. Byrne was this unbelie- unbelievable opportunity uh, that the Buffalo Bills just three weeks into the regular season had. And that opportunity, of course, was a home game against a team that they had lost 15 straight week, 15 straight at uh, games against and really an opportunity to go into first place early in the season and to really make a fool out of the people who had them 31 out of 32 just about a month ago right right and i think you know i'm not a bills fan don is a big big bills fan but i think we've been pretty honest about our expectations with the bills and i don't think at any point we were at the 31 out of 32 no, no. point we said about maybe the top of the bottom third. Yes, I think that's where we kind of uh, kind of fell. So I guess, Don, I want to ask you a question before we get going with three things. And, of course, we have some great interviews today. Dan Wolken from uh, The Daily and FoxSports.com. And, of course, Ben Nicholson-Smith, one of our good buddies from MajorLeagueBaseballTradeRumors.com. And Tim Graham, uh, formerly of ESPN.com, now with the Buffalo News. So we got to... Got quite a few interviews today and, of course, five on fantasy and pick four. But before we go with, with three things, I guess the question I want to ask you is, how have your expectations changed now after three weeks in a victory over Oakland and then a victory over the Patriots? How have your expectations for the Bills changed and where do you think the fair spot for them is right now? I, I'm going to touch on this more in one of my three things, actually. But I, I guess at this point, I would hope for the playoffs and find it realistic i tweeted or no i think i put on facebook something about like how are are the playoffs still a pipe dream and someone responded to me and said not really all they have to do is go seven and six probably to have a shot at it and if they go eight and five then they've got a good shot at it so um a lot of it's going to come down to the jets because chances are baltimore and pittsburgh are both going to make it so it's just a matter of leapfrogging the jets i still don't think they're better than the patriots even though they beat them but i I'm hoping for a playoff spot now where I, that would have been crazy talk even a week ago. You know, and I think that's fair. And I heard a Adam Schatz, who's been on this show before. From Aaron. Fo- yeah, Aaron, Aaron Schatz. Schatz, yeah. Yeah, from footballoutsiders.com. He made a good point today, and he said, if the Bills don't make the playoffs this year, they're probably going to be pretty pissed that they're in the AFC East. Yeah. Because the week 
I mentioned this last week, the, too. The right? other divisions are so much weaker in the AFC this year. Right. The AFC... Uh, what division was I talking about? I can't remember, but there's going to be another division in the AFC. Well, certainly the North. The, the, the North is the Pittsburgh division. Oh, no, okay, not the North. The, it's uh, the South. The South. Jacksonville, the Indianapolis. Right. That might look a lot like the NFC West. It's going to be ugly. It's Houston and nobody. Right. Houston, I think, is pretty decent. Right. But yeah, and I get into this. Drop off. I get into all this type of stuff. All right, stuff so let's do it then. Thing. Let's start with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, my first thing this week, the Bengals are at it again. Um, <laughs> not not winning, not for their play on the field, but, of course, they're off the field shenanigans. The starting wide receiver, Jerome Simpson, and backup offensive lineman, Anthony Collins, were detained Tuesday. So this was, I believe, the day of our last podcast when this uh, – When the incident occurred, the story broke, I think, on Thursday. But they were found with, or they were at, let me just read this. (laughs) The Cincinnati Inquirer reported that both Bengals players were present when a woman identified as Aileen Smith accepted the package Tuesday at Simpson's home. Investigators found six more pounds of pot inside the house in a northern Kentucky suburb of Crestview, blah, blah, blah. Wonderful. But, yeah, they were in, they had two and a half pounds pounds of marijuana delivered to a house owned by Simpson. Uh, there's really not much to this story yet. He's obviously probably going to face some sort of suspension. I'm not sure what Anthony Collins is going to face, if anything. I guess he's in the wrong spot at the wrong time. But, yeah, it didn't take long for the Bengals to start losing and to start uh, misbehaving. You know, I kind of feel like Don's trying to goat me into a Bengals rant here. <laughs> <laughs> because if you listen to this show with any great consistency, you'll know that the Cincinnati Bengals organization kind of disgusts me. Yeah. I hate Mike Brown. I think he's a scumbag. Uh, it's not that I have anything against Marvin Lewis, technically. Uh, I think he's a fine, fine man. I don't necessarily have a problem with him. I, he's maybe in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. And you can't blame a guy for taking one. Of, there's only 32 of those jobs, right? <laughs> right? So I'd never criticize anyone for taking any of them. But... That organization is just such a joke, and you know it, it seems like for once maybe they made a good draft pick. Andrew Dalton seems to be yeah he plays he didn't play great the other day, but they've been he's between been okay. the two of them Dalton and Joe, uh, Green maybe they have a future yeah but I know that next year's draft they're going to be one pick short of what they should have because they refuse to trade Carson Palmer <laughs> that's right <laughs> dumb idiots all right my number one thing I got a heavy one here at the end so I'm going to start light. And I'm going to mention that I went to see Moneyball the other night. Actually, on Friday night, the in-laws finally got around to taking me to my birthday dinner. Uh, My birthday was earlier in the month. And finally, our schedules matched up. And we went to Joe's Crab Shack. Yep. And uh, that's a chain around around, uh, the country that's new to Buffalo. And uh, I had a delicious meal. And afterwards, uh, the girlfriend and I decided to go to a movie. And we went to see Moneyball. And, you know, I thought it was a pretty, 
pretty good movie. It was a little slow. I think if you're going in, if you're going to go see it, you have to remember that it's a movie essentially about math, math, and <laughs> yes. baseball stats. Yes, yeah, so it's definitely not the fastest. It's it's not the born ultimatum. Maybe I'll put it that way. Right. You know, it's it's not full of suspense, but. I thought they did a good job of kind of keeping in perspective. I, I was a little worried that I was going to walk into a movie and they were going to make it seem like the Oakland Athletics had won the World Series, which we know has is, is never happened. Right. But I think they, they stayed true to some of the great things that Michael Lewis wrote in the book, and they told the story good. And I thought Brad Pitt did a phenomenal job, probably of A, getting the movie made. I, I think if there was any less of a Hollywood superstar behind this movie, it probably wouldn't have been made. But I thought Brad Pitt did a great job, and I thought the movie was very entertaining. And my girlfriend, who has never read Michael Lewis and never watched a full baseball game probably, uh, sat comfortably and enjoyed she, the she film. She enjoyed it, yeah? Yeah. I, I'd say if I gave it a B, she probably gave it a C, but she didn't hate it, and right, it was right. a good time at the movies. All right, my second thing this week, Syracuse at Toledo. If, uh, I'm sure by now everyone's heard about this game. A extra point of all things was missed and it was called good on the field it was reviewed and still called good and the wrong team won basically Syracuse won over Toledo despite the blown call on the extra point the mid-american commissioner John Steinbrecher said that NCA rules say there's no route to reverse the outcome once the game is declared over now we talked about this. We were at dinner last night. and Show meeting. Show meeting, yeah. Yep. You said it, it doesn't matter. These teams should move on. It's a non-conference game, uh, which I agree with. I mean, Syracuse and Toledo aren't exactly in contention for any major bowls or anything like that. Uh, but, I mean, what if this was uh, the Oklahoma-Florida State game of a few weeks ago or – our game of the week this week of uh, Alabama and Florida, mm-hmm. something with major implications. Do you think the outcome would be the same? I kind of do just because I don't think there is a rule to fix a game once it's over, even one that ends on the last play. Or wait, I guess it didn't land. Well, no, it did end on that play, and it's blatantly wrong. So what what would you do what how do you, how do you think they'd go forward with this well and i was wrong it was a it was a field goal it was a 33-30 victory we put a lot of trust and hope and faith into the guys in the striped outfits out there every week and they have a lot of power and a lot of responsibility and i think that's why you know the nca is so selective in hiring their officials and the nfl even more so and you know this happened in an Oklahoma Oregon game a few years back where, you know, basically Oklahoma recovered a kick and for whatever reason the ball was awarded to Oregon and it went to to review and the ball was still you know, sometimes just mistakes are made and I don't know what the solution is except to just hope that they put the best possible guys out there for these games. And maybe that's part of the problem. You know, maybe the guys roughing Toledo and Syracuse aren't good enough. Right, maybe not. And I guess that's a good – and before I go further, I was <laughs> – it was an extra point they missed, but at that forced overtime where Syracuse won. So I'm sure everyone knows that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think maybe if going forward they should make some sort of rule uh, where if a game's decided on a last play – 
That said, I don't know. Didn't what this th- happen with the Browns game a few years ago in the, the NFL? A last off second the kick and it hit the camera, and there was a lot of question on whether or not it was a field goal. Something like that. And then yeah. there was some co- controversy whether the replay system was used correctly, right, or if it was used incorrectly. And so, I mean, this happens at all levels of football. There was a small amount of controversy with the Bills' Week Two game. On the very last play, the defender, I can't remember. Right, yeah, it was a 10-minute Made a mistake and didn't just swat a ball down, went for the pick, and they kind of fought for it. And had they fought for it and tied, that goes to the offense. So they reviewed it for like 10 minutes after both teams had already gone to the locker room. And uh, I guess the officials went in there to say, hey, look, we're looking at this play. And I don't know what would have happened had they decided to. Well, I heard Buddy Nick say that he wasn't going to bring the team back out because there was only two possible outcomes: one, the play was a power, well, right. the Bills win, or it's not, and they be and they lose. Right. right. So in that case, I mean, it would yeah, have I been guess the officials awful, would have been awful silly. You know, four uh, twenty-five p.m. CBS uh, CBS game break. Uh, Jim right. Brown in the studio. Uh, the Buffalo Bills did not win, by the way. Yeah, people walking to their cars yeah. have to find out on the way home that they the win they just watched was a loss. Well, that, you know, I mean, replay. I guess replay is good for fixing most things, but I guess it doesn't fix everything. You know, I have a get out of jail free card in my pocket here, and what it is more specifically is a commitment from Mike Piera, the former head of NFL officials, to be on this show. And maybe, you know, maybe we should cash that in so that we can talk about <laughs> some of these issues. Or yeah. maybe we should keep track about, you know, some of these officiating questions because no one would be better at answering these questions and having solutions for these problems than right. uh, Mike the Piera, head. the former head of NFL officiating, who is fabulous. And, and he will be on this show soon. So Sounds good. All right. The Red Sox are on the verge of an absolute epic collapse. We, as we record this show, Tuesday, 618, on September 27th, 2011, there are two games remaining in the Major League Baseball season. And the Red Sox have officially blown a nine-game lead with three games Three weeks remaining in the season. That's impressive. The Tampa Bay Rays and their extra 2% have clawed all the <laughs> way back. All the way back. And I think... Just as much of this is about the Rays as it is sure. the Red Sox because, you know, plenty of teams. They had to beat the Yankees, too. It wasn't like they were beating. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. They're, and they're beating the Yankees this week, too. They, I mean, they got to play the Yankees these last three games. But And we kind of joked about this on the show last week about it's always interesting when the Yankees have to root for the Red Sox and the Red Sox have to right, root right. for the Rays. And here they are again. But, you know. The Red Sox just haven't had enough pitching and have had too many injuries and everything has gone wrong and it's kind of snowballed and it's a tough place to play baseball because there's such an intense pressure and God forbid that this would have happened before. They at least got a couple championships under their belt. But, you know, we have been guilty many times of of writing this Major League Baseball season off. And I guess my larger point, the reason I included this here is because I kind of think that this has proved that there's no need to really add anyone to the wild card or change the system at all. I think that there's going to be some dog days in every season where baseball just gets a little boring and drags on. But ultimately, in the end, it seems like every season, there's something to watch the last week. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The one knock on baseball is always the amount of games. But that's the one thing that even I, who admittedly is not a big baseball fan, will always come back to is amazingly, even after 162 games, 
every year or two, it seems like it comes down to one game or a one-game playoff or whatever. It's always tight. You don't normally get the blowout that we actually were calling three weeks ago. Like we're right. at the runaways in every division. It always seems to work out where it's uh, pretty tight. So I think, like you said, I think tinkering at this point would be just for the sake of tinkering or more money because, I mean, the more right. the more teams in it, the more fans in the I just seats. don't think they have the time. It's late enough. I mean, the season as it is now isn't going to end until September 29th. And, you know, then, well, what if we have a one-game playoff? So then they have to do that on September 30th. And, you know, the baseball playoffs aren't even starting until October 1st. Right. And the game snowed out. Yeah, so I, I think they just don't have time for it anyway. Okay, my last thing this week is the NFL Power Rankings came out today like they do every Tuesday, and uh, I've got them from three different sources, ESPN, NFL, and CBS, and I picked two teams in particular for obvious reasons, but uh, Detroit and Buffalo. Detroit on ESPN's ranking is four. Buffalo is six. Detroit on NFL.com's ranking is three. Buffalo is five. On CBS's ranking, Detroit's two. Buffalo is three. Now, with the except, I thought I looked at that at first, and I'm thinking there's no way that's right. Buffalo's just not that good a team, and maybe they're not typically. But the more I looked at these different power rankings, the harder it was to argue with some of these things. I mean, Detroit's an easier argument to make because they're a more talented team, probably from top to bottom. But I think what the power rankings are pointing out, as I looked at them, is there's just a lot of really, really flawed teams this year. Uh, I think there's when you talk about fantasy football, you talk about tiers. I think this year there's really one team in the top tier and then maybe 10 teams below them. Uh, you think Green, Green Bay, Bay is, the is top? showing that they're the best? Uh, They've beaten Chicago and New Orleans already. Right. They've beaten two tough teams. Everybody else has some sort of flaw. I mean, Buffalo is 3 and 0, and so is Detroit, but I don't think anyone would consider them Super Bowl contenders. Who do you think is better? Then Buffalo and Detroit? No, I mean, between the two of them. You got a feel for which team you I think, think is the, better? I think Detroit's probably better. You think Detroit is? They have, they've got a more talented guy at receiver. They probably have a more talented uh, quarterback. quarterback. They probably have a more talented guy in the middle of their defensive line. They've been the number one team against the pass, so maybe a little bit more balanced on defense. Right, right. Detroit might be a little bit more balanced of a team. You you mentioned flawed teams, and I think if there's a flaw that we've been seeing in the Bills, it's kind of the opposite of what I expected going into this season. I think we both kind of expected the defense to be the strength of the Bills and the offense to kind of be where are they going to score points. Well, so far it's clear that the offense is the strength of the team and the defense is where they're going to struggle. Right, the weird thing is, especially early, and I'm sure we'll talk about stuff like this with uh, Tim Graham, but the Bills gave up 10 points for uh, – they gave up a total of like 13 points for the entire second half of the New England and the entire second half of the Oakland game. But they gave up like 41 points in the first half when you combine those two games. Just ugly, ugly scores. So their flaws and slow starts, I guess. But – Really, if you look at every team, like the Saints look good. They had the one loss, but it was to a really good team. And they played But even well. the Saints have given up something like 900 yards. They give up a lot of yards and a lot of points. But what I would say about that is when they won the Super Bowl, they gave they up, gave a, lot up a lot of yards. yards and a lot of points. Right, but when they won the Super Bowl, they were also a very – I'm not sure how many turnovers they're creating this year, but not they as were many great at hope. creating turnovers right. that year. Um, Pittsburgh showing that they're very flawed. That no offen- offensive line. No offensive line. Pittsburgh, uh, Philadelphia is running into the same problem. So I never bought Philadelphia. Yeah, I guess I, they had all the pieces, it seems like. Uh, but that offensive line, I mean, Vic is not going to stay healthy, which most people maybe knew anyway. But 
So maybe the Bills are the sixth best team or so in the league. I think I have I would have probably Green Bay at one, uh, the Saints or New England at two and three, and then I think it drops off there. I mean, Atlanta is a shell of what it was last year. They've been terrible. Uh, Chicago has been okay but shaky. So I think it's really hard to find dominant teams. Baltimore has been very good except in their loss. Do you think that this is a product of the lockout? It could be. Um, the one thing we'll get to on five on – I wrote down for five on fantasy. There's a ton of injuries this year, it seems like, especially at like key positions fantasy-wise. So it's making it more noticeable. Maybe that's just the less time to work out. Um and the last thing I have about this is I heard a caller to a local radio station on the way in say that I think the Bills are going to have to win that division because uh, 10 games might not get into the playoffs, 11 games might not do it. I think the total opposite. I think there's so much parity in the league this year that there's going to be teams that are going to beat teams like Pittsburgh and Baltimore and whoever the wild card teams are. The wild card in the AFC might need nine wins this year. And so, I mean, it's probably going to be 10, but I don't think you're going to have a lot of I think you're going to have maybe like a Patriots team go like 13 and 3 or 12 or 14 and 2. And then everyone else in the AFC is probably going to, there's probably going to be a lot of teams uh, around 9, 10 wins. All right. My last thing is a sad one. Don, play the clip. Michael Kanan, who uh, has made a headline for missing six of his eight field goal attempts this year, is now back to just punting and kicking off. The former St. Morton Anderson is here for most field goals. Look out! Right through! A kickoff by Steve Gleason! It is scooped and scored by Curtis DeLoach! Touchdown, New Orleans! I don't think I've ever been as excited as a fan as I was for that moment right there. September of 2006, it was just the, just the anniversary a couple days ago. Steve Gleason, who was special teams captain for the Saints, blocked uh, Michael Kane and punt on the first first drive De- defensive yeah first drive in the Superdome post Katrina right, and it was a huge moment for Saints fans everywhere, and sadly Steve Gleason has revealed this week that he is battling Lou Gehrig's disease oh. ALS, and he was on hand at the Superdome as an honorary captain for the coin flip on Sunday. Uh, he's been presented with a Super Bowl ring. And Jeff Duncan, who's a friend of the show, been on a few times, has wrote an incredible piece for the New Orleans Times-Picayune, and you can find it at nola.com slash saints if you look for Jeff Duncan. He wrote an incredible Best American Sports Writing 2012 quality piece about Team Gleason and the fight that Steve Gleason is facing in just a, a damaging disease, ALS. And one of my best friends' father passed away from ALS, Mr. Billiter. And I wanted to take a moment just to kind of reflect on, you know, Steve Gleason is responsible for one of the greatest joys I've ever felt in my life. And we've never met. And part of me feels like it's dying with Steve Gleason in a really, really corny way. And I don't want to overstate this, but 
you know, we sports means so much to us, and that's why we're so disappointed when maybe a hero of ours we meet them years later and they don't turn out to be the person right, that right. they thought they were, or when they end up in these legal battles. And now here's a guy who's done everything right, played his ten year career, fought, clawed, was a self made pro, made it on special teams. When did he retire? Just retired two seasons ago. So he's probably he's not even forty yet? Not even forty. And wow. the poor guy, I mean, he looks like a kid now. Wow. There's nothing left of him and it's it's a really it's a really disgusting disease. And I just encourage you, Team Gleason is you can find it on Facebook, teamgleason.com, team underscore Gleason on Twitter. Uh, they're going to fight this thing publicly, and they're going to do the best they can to raise awareness. And there isn't a cure. This it's it is a death sentence, and it's a cruel one. Usually, people die of suffocation uh, as a result of ALS. So it's not a great way to end three things, and it's not something we ever wanted to talk about. But I thought, in honor of Mr. Billiter, the father of one of my best friends, and Steve Gleason. Uh, the man responsible for one of the greatest moments of my sports life. I wanted to just uh, make sure that everyone knew about Team Gleason and the things that they're doing, and hopefully we can raise a little bit of awareness. And if there's anything you can do monetarily or things like that, I'm sure there's a way you can donate to Team Gleason, and I'm sure that they're doing everything they can uh, to battle ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, as it's more commonly known. We're going to take a break. And we're going to come right back with Dan Walken from The Daily and FoxSports.com. Our next guest is from Hot Springs, Arkansas, and is a graduate of Vanderbilt University. After college, he spent five years in Colorado covering NCAA hockey the Denver sports scene, and the Air Force Academy for the Colorado Springs Gazette. He has also covered Memphis basketball for the Commercial Appeal. Today, he is a national sports columnist for the made-for-iPad newspaper The Daily. Those without an iPad can find some of his columns on FoxSports.com. His work has been honored with awards from the Associated Press, Sports Editors, and the Colorado Press Association. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Dan Wolken. How are you doing today, Dan? I'm pretty good. How are you? Doing really good. Really excited to uh, have you on today. First, I got to thank you for kind of coming in out of the bullpen to save us today. We really appreciate that. And I have to mention that I've been dying to talk to you for like the last week because you've been kind of blowing my mind on Twitter. And it seems like uh, more than anyone on Twitter, it seems like you have a real good feel for the things that are going on in NCAA sports with the realignments in college and basketball conferences and with uh, some of the new restrictions that are going to be placed on the unofficial visits and things like that. And I kind of want to start with you there. Uh, you just posted a column on foxsports.com today about kind of the changing landscape of uh, the way ADs can mingle with each other and presidents and things like that. And I guess the first question I want to ask you is, where is all this headed? Why, why do we have all, all of a sudden, why do we have all of this turnover and change? And, and what is everyone's ultimate goal? Well, I don't, you know, I don't know where it's headed. It's, 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 uh, it's just kind of unfolding before our eyes. And I don't think the people involved really know exactly where it's headed. But 
Uh, there's certainly been over the last couple of years once Big uh, Ten kind of decided it was going to expand and then the Pac-10 decided they were going to become the Pac-12. Uh, ever since then, it's, it's, it's been a little bit shaky because there's all these scenarios that get thrown out there uh, and a lot of uncertainty and, and, and athletic directors and presidents and, and, and coaches, I guess, to some degree, you know, they, they feel like uh, they, they need to better their conference affiliation uh, by any means necessary or else they're, they're afraid of getting left behind. So that's kind of created this just uh, this kind of vortex of activity and, and uncertainty within several different conferences. And uh, it's created a lot of mistrust within kind of the fraternity of athletic directors and, 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 and administrators. And it's just kind of interesting uh, in Dallas this week, it just so happens that the annual meetings of Division One A athletic directors were taking place, and of course the timing is is interesting because it comes right on the heels of Texas A&M going to the SEC and uh, Syracuse and Pittsburgh going to the ACC, and and uh, all kinds of rumors about what's going to happen with Missouri and the Big East and who's the Big Twelve going to add, and you've still kind of got a lot of uh, a lot of shifting and a lot of change that's gonna it's gonna happen and and it was just kind of interesting to be be there and to see how uh you know things that wouldn't normally be suspicious or interesting uh like the athletic director at oklahoma and the athletic director at ucla talking to each other in a hotel lobby well we know that oklahoma just went through this whole uh process of, of trying to get into the pac-10 and, and you kind of look at it and say well what are these people talking about and and it's just kind of the times we're in right now, and a lot of uncertainty, a lot of mistrust, and it's probably going to be that way for a while. Uh, it, a couple questions about uh, follow-up questions on that. First is, is all of this positioning and moving and maneuvering, is it getting us any closer to any kind of playoff system, or is that kind of just completely a separate issue from this moving and maneuvering? Yeah, I don't really think it is. Uh, to be honest with you, I mean, potentially, if there were four 16 or 18 team super conferences, like like uh, some people believe is is going to happen at some point, if that were to happen, you know, maybe you get to a point where there's four conference champions of the major conferences, and they all have championship games. So that's kind of like a playoff to get down to four, and then you've got four. Uh, they play against each other, and then maybe the two winners end up in a plus one. So it's kind of a – it's not a, a formal playoff, but it's kind of a playoff. Um, I guess that could potentially happen. But, uh, you know, the, the BCS still wields a lot of power and, and influence and still controls the postseason, and, and there doesn't seem to be this monumental uh, shift or groundswell to – take the postseason back from the BCS and, and start a playoff. So without that, I'm not really sure if super conferences do a whole lot to get us toward a playoff. It seems like we're getting real close to Oklahoma and Texas playing in a pretty awesome conference called the Big Two. Uh, what's going on with the Big 12, and why does it seem like nobody wants to be in it? <laughs> well, that's, that's funny uh, you say that. Uh, the, the truth is... Uh, Oklahoma wanted to go to the Pac-10. I don't think there's any doubt that, that if, if they had uh, 
their brothers, they would have already been off to the Pac. Uh, I, I said Pac ten, I meant Pac twelve. Right. They would have already been off to the Pac twelve with Oklahoma State. But the truth is, the Pac twelve, I don't think, really looked at it and said we need to expand. Just adding the Oklahoma schools. If, we, if we're going to expand, which is more mouths to feed, uh, more mouths to feed in the conference, which means you need to try to find ways to create more revenue. I think they looked at it and said. We can't create that kind of revenue to make it worth it unless we get Texas uh, uh, along with, with Texas Tech uh, and Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. We, we can't just take the Oklahoma schools. So, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that that kind of put Oklahoma in a little bit of a bind. I think uh, they are attached at the hip now to Texas for the foreseeable future. And then pretty much everybody else in the conference, aside from Missouri, which uh, I guess could pull the trigger and go to the SEC. Still, everyone else, your, your Texas Techs, Iowa State, Kansas, Kansas State. Uh, the, the truth is, they're just along for the ride. They they don't really have options at this point to go anywhere. Uh, so they're obviously rooting for the for the Big Twelve to, to stay together, and they'll pretty much do whatever Texas and uh, uh, Texas mainly, and then Oklahoma. I guess by by association, tell them to do. They they, they can't go anywhere. They're not going to go anywhere, and um, and then it'll be up to the group to decide how to move forward, whether to, uh, to, to go to 10 teams, whether 12 is the magic number. Uh, they're going to spend the next few days, I think, figuring out how to put the Big 12 back together. Uh, and uh, uh, for, for the Kansas and the Kansas State to the world, that's a great thing because they didn't have anywhere else to go. It, are there a few teams sitting out there waiting and saying, hey, Big 12, Big 12 over here, we'll join? Or... I think quietly, I think quietly there are, um, you know, I think, uh, I think TCU would, would, would like to get to the Big 12 if possible. Um, but the question is whether Texas and, and, uh, uh, mainly Texas and maybe some of the other schools want another school from Texas in that conference. I think TCU would like to get in, but, uh, that's a little bit dicey. Uh, I think they'd probably prefer a school that, that adds a new market, you know, whether that's a BYU. Uh, I don't know if BYU is interested. They've got a pretty nice setup right now with, with uh, their independent situation. Uh, I think they kind of like that, I think, for their their school, which is a unique school. Uh, but they, they could be enticed to jump to the Big 12. Uh, I think, I think the, the, there's a lot of schools in the Big East that are very, very nervous right now about the future of the Big East. Uh, UConn has made it very, very clear that the minute they get uh, a chance, if they ever get a chance to go to the ACC, they're they're gone. Uh, you know, TCU status is kind of up in the air, and I think Louisville and West Virginia, in particular, are looking around and and they're, they're committed to the Big Twelve. Certainly, or, I mean, to the Big East right, right now, publicly, uh, I think kind of quietly they would like uh, uh, to go to the Big Twelve if, if they have an opportunity because. Uh, it's just more as unstable as it is. It's a better situation than the Big East right now, and uh, so we'll see what happens. But uh, uh, I, I think there's, you know, I think there's a good chance that uh, one of those, if not all three, BYU and uh, Louisville and West Virginia will end up in the Big Twelve. You know, another thing that you've been kind of touching on on Twitter, and I've been thinking more and more about, is you know, some of the controversies we've had this offseason with the violations you know we've had the controversy in the early summer with o- Ohio State 
and that led to one of the most powerful coaches in the nation kind of having to resign with the towel between his legs and we had the uh, North Carolina incident and now we've had Miami and kind of talks about death penalty with that and um, I've been getting to think you know is it possible in 2011 2012 can you run a program that competes in division one sports like football and basketball can you is it even possible anymore to run a clean program i, I mean well, it, it depends on you know depends on your definition of clean uh, i guess you know strictly by the ncaa rules that, that's tough uh, you're not going to be there are some that, that do but for the most part the high level recruits the, the elite players the players that can go out and win you championships uh, there's going to be, you know, some sort of stretching of, of rules, whether it's, uh, you know, done by, uh, you know, boosters, whether it's academic fraud as opposed to, you know, paying a kid money. Uh, everyone in college athletics has their hand out to some degree. And uh, if you don't play along, you're probably not going to get great players most of the time. And, and And there are certainly exceptions to the rule, but I kind of always – I'm under the assumption that, that everybody cheats, and uh, and I kind of go from there. I don't I don't assume people are clean. I I, I kind of go the other way. I've just been around it too long. I've seen too much, and 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 you know sometimes it gets proven. Most of the time it doesn't. The reality is the system and the system gives you much more incentive to cheat than it does not to cheat uh, because hardly anybody gets caught. And until that changes, then there's no reason for, for people to change the way they operate. The Sportscasters are here with Dan Wilkin from The Daily and FoxSports.com occasionally and, of course, on Twitter at Dan, W-O-L-K-E-N. Before we let you go, a couple minutes about, you know, maybe some stuff that's going on in the field. What What's caught your eye so far in the first, you know, three or four weeks of college football season here? Well, I think LSU's obviously... Uh, as, as good or better than, than people thought they were going to be, especially on the defensive side of the ball. I know that West Virginia did, did put up some, some yards and some points on Saturday, but uh, most teams that play LSU are going to get pretty much shut down offensively. And, and I just look at what they did to Oregon in that first week. And, and uh, you know, and it's interesting because Alabama and LSU, uh, I, I would say that most people think they're the the, the two best teams in the country right now, and neither one has a, has a fantastic quarterback. They both kind of just get by with their quarterback play and, and rely on, on, on their defenses. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see if, if, if that causes them to lose a game somewhere along the line. Obviously, they, they play each other uh, a little bit later in the year, which is, is going to be a huge game. Uh, and and will obviously determine who wins the SEC West. But is there another game somewhere in there that quarterback play causes them to, to slip up and, and take themselves out of the race for the BCS title? Uh, so that's kind of interesting within the SEC. Uh, Oklahoma, I, I don't think they're as good as their ranking. Uh, I think they will uh, get beat somewhere along the line. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the Big 12. But uh, there's just something to me about Oklahoma that uh, is a little bit off now. I am very, very interested this weekend in the Virginia Tech-Clemson game. Uh, it's at Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech's got a pretty easy schedule. Uh, that's why a lot of people picked them to be in the BCS title game this year, just based on the, their schedule. 
not a lot of opportunities for them to lose, to be honest. But but this is one, and and you know Clemson is a hot team right now. I saw them uh, in person a couple weeks ago, and offensively, they are very good. They're going to put up points. Uh, Todd Boyd at quarterback, uh, he's he's a pretty talented guy, and then a freshman receiver named Sammy Watkins just gives them a huge big play capability, uh, definition of a game breaker. Um, best receiver in the ACC by far as a freshman, and and uh, Clemson's a very dangerous team, much more dangerous than they've been in the past. And, and they're confident. They've beaten Auburn. They've beaten Florida State. Uh, they're on a little bit of a roll. And and you know you look at them. If they can can ride that out and and win this week at Virginia Tech, they've got a pretty clear path to going undefeated. So uh, you know watch out for Clemson. That's that's one team that's definitely caught my eye. Uh, you mentioned about uh, wondering about Alabama and LSU and if there was a loss there. Do you think Florida can take a run at beating Alabama this week, or do you think that they're just have been beating up on nobody? Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess it's, it's always possible. I mean, you're you're going on the road in the SEC, and 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 there's no gimmies on the road, and and obviously Florida's a, a tough place to play, and and that that barn is going to be uh, absolutely on fire Saturday night. So it's going to be a tough environment, but. But I just think Alabama's way better than Florida. Uh, I think uh, the, the speed on Alabama's defense is, is going to shut down Florida and, and an offense that uh, you know I don't have a whole lot of confidence in yet. So I, I just, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't shock me if, if Florida won just because they're at home. But I think Alabama is just a much better team, especially on the defensive side of the ball. And uh, I, I don't see an upset, but... PSEC, so so you never know. All right, the sportscasters, Dan Wilkin was kind enough to take 15 minutes out of his day to help us today. We really appreciate that. Again, you can find Dan uh, at The Daily, which is a fantastic newspaper that was built from the ground up for the iPad. If you do have an iPad, make sure you jump on that. It's only 99 cents a week. Can't beat it. Some of his columns are also at foxsports.com and He's a must-follow on Twitter, at Dan Wolken. Anything else you're working on? Anything coming down the line that we can look forward to, Dan? Well, just, you know, just doing my columns, a lot of NFL, a lot of college football, and then I'll probably be jumping in to the baseball playoffs at some point here. So, uh, you know, it's a good time of year. You want to make a World Series prediction before we let you go, in case we don't talk to you before? Oh, geez, that's a tough one. Um you know the thing about Detroit is is just Verlander is 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 so good uh, that that he can win a couple games in a series by himself and and you know I, the Yankees have had a great year but I don't I don't love the Yankees uh, I think uh, Texas is 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 certainly a threat to go back um, they've got a lot of uh, they've got a lot of weapons but uh, you know I think Detroit it's not a great team but. But Verlander is just so scary. Nobody wants any part of him. So I'll go with the Tigers uh, in, out of the American League. And then, you know, from the National League, it's hard to, it's hard to, to go against Philadelphia. Yep. Uh, they're, they're, they're a terrific uh, pitching staff from top to bottom. And uh, they've, they've pretty well dominated the regular season uh, in the National League. So, uh, you know, Milwaukee's a nice story. And, uh I, I'm I'm really uh, I, I'm kind of rooting for Milwaukee just because uh, that's that's certainly a long-suffering franchise that uh, uh, I think it'd be kind of cool to see them in the World Series. But uh, uh, I don't know how my uh, my boss feels about that at at, at Fox because uh, <laughs> of, of the 
television ratings, but uh, right. I, I kind of think that's a neat story. But I'm going to go with Philadelphia and Detroit. All right. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Talk to you soon. All right. I want to thank Dan Wilkin for stepping up and filling in for Andrew Pirloff there. Great stuff with Dan. A uh, real quick book club update. Uh, we're about two-thirds of the way here done with Blood in the Cage, uh, Mixed Martial Arts, Pat Milicek, and The Furious Rise of the USC by John Wertheim. In the next couple of weeks here, I'm going to get John on the show to talk a little bit about the book. I wanted to mention, uh, we said that October's book club book of the month would be the ultimate sport, the 2011 best American sports writing series book, right. which uh, was put together by Jane Levy, who was, of course, on episode number 30 of the show. Uh, I've talked to Jane. Jane's going to be joining us to talk about the book. And what I wanted to mention tonight is that the book should be there in the store now. Uh, they kind of basically released it a little early because they're ready to release it. So according to Glenn Stout, the executive editor of the book, it should be there. So if you're interested in buying next month's book club book of the month, you should be able to do so at uh, a bookstore near you. Also, the we've developed a little bit of a relationship with the editor um, or the book company, and they have sent us a uh, not a hardcover. What do you call the opposite? Paperback. Paperback version <laughs> of Jane Levy's. I wanted to go the last soft boy. cover there, but I knew that was wrong. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Uh, Jane Levy's The Last Boy. We have a uh, paperback copy of that, which will be a part of our Twelve Days of Christmas here on the Sportscasters. So we're collecting gifts. Santa's bag is filling, so to speak. So you're going to want to look for more information about that as we get closer to Christmas. All right, we're going to take a break and be right back with Ben Nicholson-Smith to talk Major League Baseball playoffs. Our next guest is making his third appearance on the Sportscasters. He lives in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and is a graduate of the University of Western Ontario. He also has a master's in journalism from Carleton University. In his career, he has covered baseball, basketball, and the National Hockey League. Today, he is a staff writer at the wildly popular MLBTradeRumors.com. Since starting in 2008, he has contributed over 4,500 posts for the website and covered the GM meetings and many live Major League Baseball games. A warm sportscasters, welcome to the very talented Ben Nicholson-Smith. How are you doing today, Ben? Doing really well. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, we, we look forward to having you on. I know the last time we had you was right around trade deadline time, and uh, we kind of talked about uh, some teams kind of positioning themselves who would uh, kind of win the trade deadline. And sometimes... There's a, there's, a, there's a July 31st answer, and I think that answer probably would have been the Giants, that the San Francisco Giants were the big winners. Now that we're kind of a few months away from that and we're getting ready for the playoffs, has your opinion changed on who the winners and who the losers were on trade deadline day when we spoke with you last? Yeah, it, it definitely has. I think, you know, you look at, at Doug Fister and, you know, this guy has been amazing for the Tigers. It, it's you know, you can make the argument that he's been 
every bit as viable as Verlander, as crazy as that sounds. And, and I wouldn't make that argument, but, I, I, you know, you look at what he has done, especially with the Tigers, it's 10 starts worth of 1.79 EA walk anybody. He's been pitching deep into games. So, you know, to have an ERA below two, that's really what the Tigers needed because Max Scherzer hasn't stepped up to become that number two starter on a consistent basis. Rick Porcello might need a little bit more time to develop. And, you know, that fifth rotation spot with Phil Coke at first and then some other guys cycling through was really a weak spot for the Tigers. So I think that deal and anticipating Pister's improvement for the Tigers is probably the best one of the year to, to, to this point in the season. It's interesting you bring up the Tigers because I wanted to ask you something about them. You know, I was I was looking at the standings last night and kind of going through th- through some things and trying to get a feel for for how some of the teams may have gotten to the position they're in. And one thing I noticed that was interesting about the Tigers is that they've kind of done their business pretty quietly in the in the uh, AL Central this year. Um, Maybe Kansas City was a story early, but they faded. Minnesota's been terrible. They really, there's really not a second best team in that division, and they have been, they have taken advantage of it. I think they have the second most division wins in the league by one to the Milwaukee, and Milwaukee has an extra team. Do you think that Detroit is going to be able to compete with the rest of the American League when the playoffs start? Or do you think this is a team that has 93 wins because they've been able to win, you know, 58 division games against a, kind of a weak division and, and basically they're just the best of the least? Or do you think it's that they are a really dominant team? You know, that's a good question. And I, I think that a big part of it is that they're beating up on the Twins who have been shockingly bad and the Royals. You know, the White Sox even and the Indians aren't that great. So up and down that division, there are a lot of weak spots. And the Tigers have capitalized on that. But you know, you ask the Yankees or Red Sox or Rangers or Rays, do you want to face the Tigers in the first round of the playoffs? And obviously you don't because you're going up against Verlander, you're going up against Fister, and then, you know, likely Scherzer in the third game. So it, it's really a, a quality team. The back end of that bullpen has been pretty quality for them. And they've had most of a week now to ensure that the guys who are banged up, Betami, um, you know, Carlos Guillen potentially, they've had the chance to rest them. And that can help going into the playoffs. So I, I think that they're a, a potential uh, World Series candidate. I mean, there's no reason they can't make it all the way to the World Series. I don't think they're the deepest team. I don't think they're the best team in baseball, but they've gotten this far, and I do think they have every chance of, of winning a title. All right, let's stick in the American League. Let's just, we'll do American League, then we'll do National League, and we'll let you go. So Boston, where does this – it hasn't happened yet. They haven't quite blown it yet, but – They've gotten to the point where they no longer control their own destiny. Uh, where does this rank in, in your mind in the all-time collapses? A nine-game lead three weeks ago? Yeah, it, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And as far as all-time collapses, you know, let's wait until they collapse. I, I'm not saying I, I know that you're giving them that chance to come back in these next two, potentially three days and turn their season around make it into the playoffs. But it's bad. I mean, the 07 Mets did this. They lost, and uh, that was a painful one for Mets fans. Um, it certainly happened before. Um, 1995 was another one in the American League with the Mariners uh, winning in that one-game playoff. So, you know, I, it, it happens. Uh, the Rockies have subjected teams to this with some amazing late-season searches. But, 
It's certainly not the norm. It's the Tigers even a couple of years ago in 2009 collapsed like this. So it does happen every couple of years. And I, I certainly didn't anticipate it. I thought that they had enough pitching to, to get by. And obviously they didn't because once Buckholes went down and Beckett got banged up a little bit, it became pretty apparent that they couldn't rely on Miller and Wakefield and Lackey. It's just a disaster on the field for them. So, you know, it, it's really a shortage of pitching depth. And, and that for me, they are not one of the four best teams in the league at this point. If you were the Yankees, Tigers, and Rangers, and you were honestly assessing your chances to make it to the World Series, would you be happier if Boston made the playoffs, or would you be happier with Tampa Bay? I mean, that, that might seem like a basic question. Well, obviously, you'd want the team tanking, but you know, sometimes a team like that just needs to get in, and then they can kind of get a new perspective on things and go from there. And sometimes the team that's surging has been playing playoff baseball for so long that they can't. They have nothing left when they get to the playoffs. In your mind, if you're these three teams, who do you think they honestly would rather see make it? I think they'd rather see the Red Sox, no question. I mean, you look at uh, their, their catching situation, and they've got some banged-up catchers and Salt Lamarckia and Veritek. Um, you know, you look at that rotation, and who do you line up after Lester? I mean, you go to Beckett for Game 2, you probably go to Bedard in Game 3, and then, you know, Eric Bedard is basically a five-inning pitcher, and, you know, he's not going to take you seven, eight innings into the game, so all of a sudden you're into the bullpen. Sure, Papelbon's been good. Bard's had an up-and-down month. The save base has been amazing for them, but, you know, that is not a team that really scares you, especially the way they're playing. They're on their heels. They're uh, using tons of pitchers. I mean, even that 22 innings of baseball on Sunday, having to go up against the Yankees for two games, you really run yourself thin, and they try to go out and acquire some pitching, but essentially this is a very weak team right now, and, I, you know, I'm really think that the Rangers, Tigers, um, and, uh, Yankees. and Yankees would be rooting to face them. How surprised are you with Tampa Bay? Uh, it feels like this is maybe a year early. Um, you know, they, they made some decisions in the offseason to let some guys go, and here they are, 89-71, two games left. If you would have told them that this is where they'd be at the start of the season, they probably would have signed up for this in a heartbeat. How have they been able to do it? Well, you know, they've been able to do it with a lot of talent coming up through the pipeline. You look at uh, the Red Sox fading, and in opposition to that, in Tampa Bay, you have Matt Moore coming up and becoming uh, a key player for them, making a big start against the Yankees the other day. You have Desmond Jennings coming up. Um, you have a remarkably healthy five-man rotation. Um, that, that has really kept the Rays afloat, and I don't think that they're going to count on that kind of health next year. You really can't count on that kind of health. Um, but you need to give them credit at the same time because teams that keep pitchers healthy and development develop them in a way that they can stay healthy for 200 innings over the course of you know six months, seven, eight months. That is a, a skill and something that major league teams should strive to do. But um, I, I really think that it, it is a surprise, and, and it comes down to a lot of talent in the system and, and a starting rotation that was able to stay healthy. One last thing in the American League. I, I've noticed, I, I kind of mentioned the splits earlier, but the Yankees and the Rangers have really been exceptional home teams. Both of them are 52-29 and 29 at home. Do you think that home field advantage is going to go a long way to deciding the, who wins the American League this year more than in previous years because there are such strong home teams in the playoffs? Or do you think that the playoffs are really going to be decided the way they normally are and that's who pitches best? Yeah, I think it's probably who pitches best. I, I think it's interesting for sure that the Yankees and Rangers have such impressive home records. And I think the Brewers are another team that has 
a similar record, if I'm not mistaken. But, you know, essentially it's going to come down to who's pitching and who's healthy because that's, that's the other thing. You, you can look at, at records, and the teams that, that took the field in April are so different than the teams that take the field in October because of trades and injuries and poor performance. So I, I think that essentially it's health and, uh, and pitching. All right, let's switch over to the National League real quick. It's Sportscasters here with Bud Nicholson-Smith from MLBRumors.com. TradeRumors.com. Quick, quick question. I think, I think there's a real easy way to handicap this National League. It's with a real simple question. Can anyone beat the Phillies? Yeah, I think everyone can beat the Phillies. Any of the teams that are vying for the Phillies, for the playoffs, can beat the Phillies. Okay. Who has the best chance? Um, I mean, I, I, I do think that the Phillies are the best team, and I don't think it's all that close, but, you know... Who is the best chance? I think any of these teams could. Obviously, the Braves are slumping like crazy right now, but I, I think the Brewers could do it. I think the Diamondbacks could do it, and the Cardinals or Braves could as well. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't rule any of those teams out. And, and you're talking a five-game series. Anything can happen. Yeah, and you mentioned we talked about the slide in, in the National League, or the American League, and we have a similar thing here in the National League with the Braves and this horrible slump. They're 3-7 and seven in the last 10, and uh, St. Louis is only 6-4. and four. They're not exactly you know, dominating the competition here to take advantage of some of the mistakes that the Braves have been making. Uh, does, do either one of these teams stand out as the better of the two if either one of them ends up making it in? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, you know, that's, that's a really tough question. I don't think the difference is as pronounced as it is in the American League um, with Boston and Tampa Bay. Uh, you know, you look at that Braves bullpen, I think it would play up um, in the postseason um, I think the Cardinals have a pretty strong rotation, but uh, the Braves, uh, with their rotation issues, probably have better uh, statistics than they actually do um, players on the field because of the way Hanson and Jurgens have been banged up this month. So, you know, you can look to Beachy, and, and he's obviously a guy who can contribute for you, and they have tons of young kids who can come up. But I would probably give a slight edge to the Cardinals, but I don't have as much conviction in saying that as I did saying that the Red Sox are inferior to the race. It seems like every year there's a player who emerges almost out of nowhere to just kind of be the star of the playoffs. I, I think you can kind of look at Cody Ross last year with the Giants, and he won the National League Championship Series MVP. And he was kind of a guy who you know, became a, an October star. Is there any players, as you look over the rosters, the potential playoff teams that you look at and say, you know, this guy has a really, really great chance to kind of affect the way this tournament plays out in October? Wow, well, yeah, and that's, that is a really great question. I think that um, you, know, you might look to guys who have recently switched leagues or switched teams, someone who will be uh, facing his opposition for the first time. Um, so potentially someone like Aaron Hill with the Diamondbacks, who has hit pretty well for them since coming over in a trade in August. Um, you know, I'd say Edwin Jackson, except for... He's already played for about half the teams in baseball to begin with. The National League has had a good look at him. But you might look at guys, and that's part of the thing with Cody Roth, although he was traded within the National League. Um, conventional wisdom says that if you haven't seen someone, it might be a little bit harder to adjust. So if I could predict this with any certainty, I'd be uh, making a whole lot of money in Vegas right now. But <laughs> I, I don't know. All I can say is to look out for some of those guys who might be in new opportunities in situations that they can take advantage of. All right, it's the Sportscasters here, just about out of time with Ben Nicholson-Smith from Major League Baseball, TradeRumors.com, MLBTradeRumors.com. You can find him on Twitter. He is at MLB 
TR Ben. Two, three last real quick things before you go. First thing is I need a World Series prediction from you. Second thing is I need to know if you've seen Moneyball and what you thought. And the third thing is would you vote for Justin Verlander as an MVP or do you think that he has a pitching award and you can take those in any order you like? Wow. Okay. Well, I'll start with the World Series prediction. And I predicted at the beginning of the season that the Red Sox will beat the Braves. And <laughs> that prediction is hanging on by the skin of its teeth. Yeah. But, you know, I'll, I'll go with that because it's still possible. So I, I'm going to stick with that one. Um, you know, you might be able to find some holes in that argument, given how poorly <laughs> those two teams are playing. But uh, that was my season beginning prediction. So I'll stick with that one. Um, as far as Moneyball, I have not seen it. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I'll probably see it uh, within the week as long as I can find the time to hit up the theater. And then Justin Verlander for MVP. I mean, uh, he's a guy who has been incredibly impressive this season. I've had the chance to see two of his games in person this year, and the guy is dominant. But I, I wouldn't give him the MVP. I think that um, you, you look around the league at uh, Jacoby Ellsbury, at Curtis Granderson, Robinson Cano, Jose Bautista, those are the four guys who have really impressed me um, as everyday position players, and I would be content to hand it to any one of them over Verlander. But that said, Verlander would probably be top five on my ballot. I think he's been phenomenal for that club. And, you know, they have Miguel Cabrera. They have Alex Avila. Those are two other guys who could be top ten MVP finishers this year, and deservedly so. So, for me, I would say no to Verlander. But, uh, I don't know, what, what's your take on Verlander? You know, I've always been kind of, kind of uh, on the side of, I feel like, that the MVP is a pitching, or the MVP is a hitting award, and the Cy Young is a pitching award. And I think if a pitcher is going to win the MVP, I think he has to do something just so extraordinary. Uh, but and you know, there's a there's a couple guys I really like. You know, I really like uh, the Red Sox, Ellsbury, and you know, Curtis Granderson's been great for the Yankees. And, and I don't know if if those are my top three. I don't know if there's enough of a reason for me to put Verlander over one because. He's such a clear Cy Young winner already, you know. So that would be kind of my take. I think that um, if I had a ba- if I had a ballot, I would probably put. Well, I'd probably wait two days, and if the Sox got in, I'd put Ellsbury one and put Granderson two, and then put Verlander three. It's probably what I do. Fair enough. But uh, oh yeah, I wanted to say stick with that pick because remember Peter King last year. Peter King picked the Steelers and the Packers to play in the Super Bowl in the Sports Illustrated Preview Edition. And then when the playoffs start, he wimped out and he switched to the Packers and the Patriots. Yeah. So don't make there that mistake. Stick with, your, no. stick with your boys. Yeah. All right. Thanks, buddy. We appreciate it. Anytime. It's my pleasure. Thanks uh, for having me on. Talk to you soon. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, we have Let Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care, I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. There's a joke in there where I poke fun at my brother Greg for his fantasy aptitude, but I have to give him a little bit of props. Uh, he competes with Don and I in a league that we call the Brothers League. He's doing well. Which is an all-play league, and for the first time in three seasons, Greg had, had the 10 and a week. Oh, he went back and checked? Yeah, this is his first time. Nice. Congrats. So congrats, Greg. 
All right. Uh, this week we're going to talk a little bit about some of the surprises uh, and disappointments through the first chunk of the season here. Some specific surprises I came up with. Uh, it's hard not to pick a lot of a lot of the Bills, but uh, Fred Jackson and Ryan Fitzpatrick. Fred Jackson is currently third in ESPN standard leagues. Fitzpatrick is currently sixth. Uh, I mean, what can you say about those guys? They were both probably drafted. Fitzpatrick was probably undrafted in fantasy They've leagues. They've definitely outplayed their draft position. If right, were, by if, a long I shot. I mean, Ryan Fitzpatrick was probably not drafted at all. Right, probably not. Do you want me to go through all mine? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I have Cam Newton. That's a kind of a no-brainer one right now. Um, he's. I could have also mentioned Chad Henney. I didn't because he's done everything kind of in one game, so... But he also is up there. Newton, currently the fourth-ranked quarterback in ESPN Standard Leagues. Ryan Matthews, a lot of people whoever, or a lot of people left him for dead after his lousy rookie year. Yep, he's currently ranked fifth among running backs. I had him as well. Darren Sproles, uh, again drafted probably very late or not at all, unless you're in a PPR league. But he's currently ranked eleventh in standard scoring, so that's not bad at all. And that would probably be even higher in PPR leagues. My last one is Matt Hasselbeck, who is 11th, so in a 10-team league, wouldn't be that great. But he's putting up really nice numbers. He's averaging like about 310 yards a game. I think he's got like five touchdown passes. In a typical quarterback year, he'd probably be around the top five with that type of numbers. But just because the quarterbacks have been so great this year, he's, he's the number 11, 11th-ranked quarterback, and I put him on my surprise list. Uh, as far as my surprises go, you did mention – Ryan Matthews. Ryan Matthews. And I was going to just put quarterback play in general. Yeah. It seems like this is the year of years for that weight on your quarterback strategy. For sure, yeah. There's so many quarterbacks who are having a great season, and many of them are outplaying quarterbacks that were probably drafted higher in the draft. For example, someone like... Tony Romo's a name. I think he's about the seventh or eighth ranked quarterback right and he's certainly been outplayed by ryan fitzpatrick and cam, cam newton. newton right and cam newton's worst game is only because it was played in a monsoon for half of it right and he still outscored uh i had the choice of starting cam newton or freeman this week and i actually went with cam newton even though i said he was kind of a sit and cam newton did outscore freeman it was only by a couple points but still he's putting up numbers all, all year. So, I mean, it's a three-game sample, but he's been good in every opportunity he's had. Uh, Beanie Wells is another guy that has been a surprise for me. Uh, I, I think that it, uh, people have – he's maybe another guy who have disappointed people in his rookie year or his second year in the league, and people have shied away, said things like, well, this guy can't even beat out Tim Hightower, and Tim Hightower is no superstar. Right. But I think that Beanie Wells has done a great job so far this season as uh, as a back. If you My, have him as a number two, the, uh, you're, th- you're thrilled. Minus the last game where he mysteriously sat out. Yeah, I, that was strange. I, Don and I both missed that in the experts league. <laughs> uh, so that was definitely a surprise. Uh, a couple of disappointments. Arian Foster's hamstring. Yeah, yeah. I have I have injuries in general. Uh, yeah, injuries have been a bust in general. Oh, Daniel Thomas was another one of my surprises. Yeah, he has turned he it on a He was someone that we thought... His we stock thought, got lower and lower as the season got closer and closer. And then yeah. week, week one made it look like, okay, yeah, he's going to be garbage. And then he had a nice week two, followed it with a nice week three. Right, so he's been a surprise, hitting two out of the three weeks. Couple, yeah. 
Go ahead. No, just I was going to say a couple of disappointments. We mentioned injuries. We mentioned Aaron Foster's hamstring. I wanted to throw Sam Bradford out there. Um, I think part of this is because of how hard the schedule is for the Rams in the yeah. first half of the season. Steven Jackson getting banged up. I want to encourage you to kind of, even though Sam Bradford's been a disappointment, to kind of hold tight with him. I think the reason you're drafting set, drafted Sam Bradford is going to pay off when the schedule gets a little bit easier after around the sixth week. Uh, another disappointment I, I thought is Brandon Marshall. He was someone that I was really high on coming into the season, and I, I mean he had a four, he had a four point week last week against Cleveland. <laughs> right. You know, I mean he he was really good the first week in that shootout against Miami or against uh, New England, and then he was just okay, and then he was really bad in a week that you thought he might be really good. Yeah, another receiver I have on the disappointment list is Roddy White, who a lot of people had as their one or two receiver this year, and it's. If you own him, when you watch his games or watch his numbers, they're not that bad, but compared, he was about the number one ranked guy right now. He's the number 22 ranked guy. I think a lot of that has to do with just how crazy the quarterback numbers are, and I'm sure he won't finish that way. I have a few more, unless you've got Yeah, go ahead. uh, Michael Vick, uh, which is obviously injury-related, but even before that, he's the 17th ranked quarterback now. Again, going back to what you said about waiting on quarterbacks, he was a guy taken in the first round, if not like the early first round. Another guy, Rashad Mendenhall, he's the 33rd-ranked running back. And right in that same group is Chris Johnson at 34 and Frank Gore at 32. Yeah, all three of those guys have been brutal. And all three of those guys are in clear, are clear-cut number ones. They're right. not in timeshares. Uh, might to get all the opportunities that Rashad Mendenhall had against what's not supposed to be a great run defense in Indianapolis, that, that was a t- very disappointing week. Right, and even I said last week that I've been down on Mendenhall a little bit all year, but that was a game I thought he'd be, have a nice nice big bounce-back game. Ocho Cinco uh, has almost matched his number with his rank. He is the 82nd-rated receiver on that offense that mm. is just blowing up. So I think that might be a factor of not having the, enough preseason. Hakeem Nix, I know part of it's injury, but he's – was probably a top three, four guy, and he's the 30th ranked receiver right now. Again, that could be a – it's his injuries, it's Eli. And like I said before, I don't know if you have any more, but injuries in general have hit guys named Foster, Britt, Manning, Colston, Moreno, uh, Miles Austin after a huge week, Jamal Charles, Jeremy Macklin, Steven Jackson. So this year more than – more than I can remember, big, big-name guys are getting hit, some of them for significant time. All right, so moving on, Don is going to do some sits, and I'm going to do some starts. But before we get to that, since we are kind of earlier in the week this week as opposed to last year, I thought we might mention just a couple of guys to look for on the waiver wire this, this, this week. Uh, one is that Kenny Britt is out for the season, yeah. and someone's going to have to catch those balls. And it seems like Nate Washington for sure. is the second-best guy there. If he's available in your league, uh, I know his owner percentage is 8.6 on ESPN.com. Wow. Wow. So he's out there uh, quite him. a bit. Uh, definitely get him. The number one pickup this week is probably going to be Kendall Hunter, uh, who is he's going to be uh, filling in for Frank Gore, who's supposedly going to miss at least a week. Uh, Kendall Hunter... I don't know a lot about him, but he's got a really low 1.2% percent 
ownership rate in ESPN.com weeks. Tory Smith, I'm so sure, is going to get at least a lot of yeah, looks. Yeah, Tory Smith is going to – he's in 0.2% owned. So there's a bunch of guys who, based on their week two play or injuries, are certainly available to be picked up this week. There's going to be a race to get Tory Smith, Kendall Hunter, Nate Washington, maybe Montario Hardesty to some degree. Um, I think Dester McCluster kind of proved that he's the better guy uh, between him and Thomas Jones. If he's still available in your league, probably you're a week late on that, but why not? Uh, so I wanted to mention him. Also, I wanted to mention Steve Smith. Jeremy Macklin might miss some time. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so if Steve Smith. That's from, true. At least he's probably getting a point to a point, too, where he's feeling better. Yeah. You know, I, fi- I figured he wouldn't be make much of an impact early because it seemed like he was kind of rushing back. He had a nice week, too. And uh, so I think Steve Smith could be a guy for Philadelphia that might have a great week three. The one thing with receivers, too, is I lost Kenny Britt this week. And I freaked out about it a little bit, but the bigger problem on the team that I have in mind was my running backs. Running backs are super, super scarce this year, whereas receivers, it seems like because there's so many quarterbacks putting up great numbers. Yeah, easier, there's still plenty of receivers to, to be guys. had. I agree a guy like that. Nate Burleson might still be available on some waiver wires, and he's another guy that will put up some decent numbers on that roster. Um, starts and sits this week. Your non-obvious starts. Uh, you have those, so go ahead. Yeah, I have the starts at quarterback. I don't know if this is too obvious already, but I was going to say Ryan Fitzpatrick. Uh, he plays the Bengals. I think it's a great matchup. The, the, the Bills' offense is just rolling on fire. Uh, so I love Ryan Fitzpatrick this week. You could easily be in a situation where you have maybe Ryan Fat Fitzpatrick and, oh, I don't know. You're going to have someone like Matt Ryan at this point. I yeah, don't know who they play have, this week. Let's but. even say you have Matt Stafford. Okay, Matt Stafford's going to have to go against the Cowboys this week. Wow. So if there was ever a week to sit Matt Stafford and your hmm. other option was Fitzpatrick, I might I might have the balls and put Fitzpatrick in over Stafford this yeah, week. Yeah, I'm a Bills fan. I'm not sure I quite am there yet. But uh, just the fact that that's a conversation is – it's a, it's a, yeah, I'm not 100% sure if I do it. Right, but, but it's, it's, it's a, a thought. Right. And, you know, maybe a better example is Steve, uh, Sam Bradford. I definitely would play right, no, Fitzpatrick right. over Sam Bradford this week. Uh, I probably would play him over. I don't even know who Freeman plays, but people were high on him in the preseason. I would definitely play Fitzpatrick over Freeman. Yeah, they play the Colts. Yeah, I still probably would play Fitzpatrick over him. Um, and that said, this might be a good test because Cincinnati will probably have the best defense at. Uh, the Bills have played this year, other than maybe Oakland, but that turned into a shootout. Okay, my sit this week, I mentioned him earlier as having a really nice uh, year, is Matt Hasselbeck. Hasselbeck looks, or has what looks like on the surface maybe a nice matchup against the Browns, but the Browns are the third in the league in pass defense this year. That could be a little bit of a product of who they played. They haven't exactly played a bunch of world beaters, but uh, Hasselbeck, maybe not as obvious a start as you, you would think, with, especially now with Kenny Britt out too. Right. My start at running back is going to be Darren Sproles. Uh, I love this matchup. Really, all Saints I'm really high on against the Jaguars, yeah. provided there isn't a monsoon there and the weather is typical Florida weather. I love all the Saints this week, and I really like Sproles. I think he's getting more and more comfortable in his role in the offense, and I think he's going to catch at least seven passes this week. And... I think he's going to get more and more work in the red zone as the Saints have kind of st- kind of struggled early in the season in the red zone, and they've kind of switched to do some different things to improve in that area. And I think De'Aaron Sproles is someone who's going to get more and more and more of the looks that Reggie Bush got in the red zone 
uh, as the weeks go on. So I'm really high on Sproles this week, and I'm really high on the Saints in general uh, against the Jaguars. Yeah, I don't expect the uh, Jags to be able to keep that one close. So the only guys I might be worried about would be someone like a Henderson if the game turns into a blowout and he doesn't have one of the early touchdowns. But, right. I mean, if you have any of the three Saints running backs as, say, like a yeah, flex, put I, him in. I think you could start any of them. Uh, my sit this week, again, is Mendenhall. Uh, again, he's a number one guy. No competition, really. He does split some carries with Redmond, but I think that's more because they've just both been... I mean, Redmond hasn't been exactly effective either. And he's playing Houston. and At, In Houston, Houston. In Houston. And they've shown that they have a decent defense this year. So 20, Pittsburgh's struggling. That offensive line is bad. 49 carries for 148 yards in one TD. Yeah, less around right around 3.0 yards a carry. Ugh. Uh, my start this week at wide receiver is Julio Jones in Atlanta. Um, he had a, another 100-yard week last week in their matchup. Atlanta seems hell-bent on getting Matt Ryan killed and <laughs> you know throwing the ball a billion times. Uh, Matt Ryan is 74 for 122 already this season. So, And uh, for a comparison, Eli Manning is 53 of 85. So... I like Julio Jones quite a bit this week. I think he's an emerging guy. I think uh, I think there's only been six players in the last 20 years to have a rookie season of 1,000 yards, and I bet we have two this year. I think A.J. Green and Julio Jones are yeah. both going to get 1,000 a, a yards, and uh, Julio Jones and A.J. Green or uh, Dalton would be the first two. Dalton and, and uh, Green would be the first two to do it as both rookies. But uh, I really like Julio Jones this week against the Seahawks. My wide receiver sits this week. I have actually two of them from the same team, and that's Jeremy Macklin and Deshaun Jackson. Macklin will probably be out. Yeah. Macklin so might, don't play him. might not play. Yeah. So keep an eye on him. But I wanted to throw him in there and Deshaun Jackson just because of that. But they play the 49ers, and the 49ers have been a bad team for a long time, but they they – their defense kind of flies under the radar because they're overshadowed by just how bad their offense is. Kind of like the Bengals. The Bengals have a decent defense. But, uh, yeah, it's not a great matchup. Macklin, like you said, might sit. Deshaun Jackson will be basically the only target on the field then for them. You mentioned Steve Smith, who might be a, a sneaky play, but they might also have to deal with uh, Kafka at quarterback, who looks good in relief in his first game, but he looked terrible in relief in the third in the last game. Yep. Um, Another interesting note about the, the 49ers is uh, I read it in TMQ, and I love TMQ, Tuesday morning quarterback in ESPN, Greg Easterbrook writes it. He says the 49ers have not allowed a 100-yard rusher since 2009. So they didn't have one 100-yard rusher against them at all last year. They've continued it this year. I'm sure part wow. of that's their lousy division, but they still have to play outside that division for eight games a, or ten games a year. So, uh, yeah, I don't like – I don't like the receivers there. I actually do like LaShawn McCoy this week just because I think if Kafka's in quarterback, it's going to be the LaShawn McCoy show. So I'd be worried if I were Eagle or had Eagle receivers. All right, last thing for Five on Fantasy today, just a quick update on the Sportscasters Listeners League. Uh, congratulations to Pittsburgh Feelers, the only 3-0 and team in the league. Uh, they have done it with 534 points scored. That is also the most in the league. So congratulations to the Pittsburgh Feelers. Uh, as far as who makes that team go, 
Uh, I'm looking at his starting lineup right now. And if the games were about to go, he'd have Ryan Fitzpatrick in there, Maurice Jones-Drew, LaShawn McCoy, Wes Welker's been great, uh, Plaxico Burris, Jason Witten. He also has Ryan Matthews and Ahmad Bradshaw. So just really nicely put together team, and they are 3-0 atop of the league. I am 2-1. I held serve this week and defeated my opponent, who was manning up 138.9 to 93 Point zero two. So I won. Don, you lost to Avatarish Jackson, one eighty six point five six to one thirty two. I did another tweet. time. I put up a huge score and lost. I did send out a tweet to uh, Avatarish to see if he'd join us today. Haven't heard back from him, so we will keep him on the list of people we owe five minutes to. But maybe we haven't worked into their schedule just yet. So Avatarish will be on at some point. Uh, I lead the Steve division. I'm two and one. Got four one and two teams in that division. Uh, your division seems like the harder of the two. Pittsburgh's Feelers at three and zero. Oh, Avatars Jackson two and one. The Penn State Scholarly ALCS two and one. And then you and what you're talking about Willis are one and two. I think what you're talking about Willis unfortunately might be the worst team. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And luckily I get to play him this week. So hopefully my team, which is still what like the third highest scoring team in the league even though i'm one and two uh hopefully they keep up their high scoring ways and uh, i can get out a freaking win here i've been snake bitten in this league and i have a big division game against the cardiac cats this week so that'll do it for five on fantasy we're gonna take a quick break here and we're gonna come back with tim graham we've been looking forward to this yeah absolutely all right we'll be right back Our next guest is from Wyndham, Ohio, and is a graduate of Baldwin Wallace College in Berea, Ohio. He spent eight years working for the Buffalo News, where he covered hockey and boxing while serving two terms as the president of the Boxing Writers Association of America. He then moved to cover the Miami Dolphins for the Palm Beach Post. In 2008, he left sunny Florida to join ESPN.com, where he blogged about the AFC East. This summer, he returned to Buffalo, where he is again a contributor for the Buffalo News. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the wild, bodacious superstar, Tim Graham. How are you doing today, Tim? <laughs> Thanks for having me on, guys. I went, did, it, did it come up in our last conversation that I was from Wyndham, Ohio? Where did you dig that up? Well, here's how I dug that up. I noticed on Facebook that you went to Wyndham High School, so I Googled where Wyndham High School was, and it said it was in Wyndham, Ohio. That's true. Yeah. Although there are a few Wyndhams around the country. There's also a Wyndham, Connecticut, which Wyndham, Ohio was named after, but... Yeah, that was pretty good. Uh, that was pretty good sleuthing. Uh, Wyndham is uh, a tiny speck on the map, so it's near Youngstown. Went, is that when correct? When people ask me where I'm from, I just say Cleveland, which is true because I was born there and uh, and was raised there for a number of years. I just graduated from Wyndham High School, so gotcha. Very impressive. So we're pumped to have you for a lot of reasons, and I read that introduction and it made me change my first question because I have to ask you, what did you think of the Sucker punch, not a sucker punch in the fight a couple weeks ago. The Ortiz and uh, Mayweather fight. Yeah, I thought it was uh, within the rules, but sometimes within the rules is not always appropriate. That doesn't necessarily give you 
uh, a free pass just because something is within the rules. I think that it was a technically a legal punch, but I thought it was a low-class maneuver, and Floyd Mayweather knew exactly what he was doing, and that uh, that was that's the kind of character he has uh, that he would uh, that he would decide to, to do something like that. And I don't know that he thought that it would end the fight, but you could just tell by his eyes um, and what he was looking and, you know, what he was looking at at the time. And when Joe Cortez was, lo- you know, uh, glancing away, trying to you know, get uh, get the fight back on, that Floyd Mayweather pounced on an opportunity to take advantage of a guy uh, who he was upset with. And I don't know that I can necessarily blame him for being frustrated at the time it was a dirty maneuver by uh by ortiz to do the intentional headbutt but um you know i I think floyd mayweather is a a pretty low character person he's proved that out of the ring but he always at least had a pretty good reputation inside the ring and uh you know i think that uh, what happened in that fight just kind of uh, reflects the kind of person he is do you think we ever get to see mayweather pacquiao or I would like to think we do, and I'm going to say yes because the fight is just too big. It's really the only fight out there that anybody wants to see. And when I say anybody, I'm not including the hardcore boxing fan. The hardcore boxing fan you know, knows the top ten rankings of many of the weight classes and is excited to see number five fight number seven. But when it comes to the type of matchup that the general public wants to see that captures the attention of the casual sports fan uh, to get them to pay big money for pay-per-view, uh, to get it on ESPN Sports Center, you know, you never see boxing on Sports Center really anymore unless yeah. something crazy happens. You never see boxing on the cover of Sports Illustrated uh, anymore. It used to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated all the time. Uh, but um, yeah, I think it's been years since any fighter was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and probably uh, the last time it happened, it had been years since the previous time. So it's uh, you know boxing is a dying sport, and I hate to say it because it's a sport I love, but uh, I think that this fight is one that the boxing needs to make it a point to pull it off. I know that. Uh, the, pr- the promoters are posturing. Bob Arum, who is Manny Pacquiao's promoter, uh, said uh, just last week that he he is certain this fight will never happen. But <laughs> that's just a promoter posturing, uh, trying to maybe you know ratchet up anxiety levels, or you know his way of testing Floyd Mayweather's people. So um, there's there's a lot of reason to think it won't happen just because of the animosity between the two sides, but. For boxing's sake, it better happen. All right. Well, we didn't bring you on to, to talk about boxing, but I had to ask you that just because I was I tried, like, you wouldn't believe how hard I tried to get Chris Mannix from Sports Illustrated to come out and talk about boxing with us, but apparently he's too busy. I don't know. Anyway, uh, let's talk about the Bills for a second because even though we're a national show, we're structured that way and last time we had you on we kind of had you on to talk about the afc east in general and i'm sure we'll still talk about the afc east anyway but and i'm sure i predicted the bills would finish fourth yeah and, <laughs> and probably so did we i said third i thought the dolphins were worse all right well okay <laughs> but uh the, the first thing i guess i want to ask you is uh i want to ask if you're taking credit for this you come back to the buffalo news <laughs> and they're three and zero all of a sudden what's the deal <laughs> 
I think there are probably a lot of things you could take uh, people could take credit for. All you need to do is just find something that hadn't happened until this year and <laughs> say, you know, it's your lucky shirt. It's, uh, you know, I was back in the in the Buffalo area. I didn't uh, I didn't move, so right, I was right. in Getzville uh, for the past since 2009. So uh, I don't know. I doubt that it's I doubt that it's me. <laughs> Maybe it's the fact that I'm not around that locker room to poison it uh, as much as I used to be. That's what Jerry Sullivan's for, right? <laughs> That's right. You All know, right. Uh, Jerry's a good friend of mine, and I know that he's, uh, you know, readers and listeners have a love-hate relationship with Jerry. <laughs> he's uh, just a bit curmudgeonly. I think what a lot of people need to understand is that, um, you know, Jerry's a brand in many ways, and uh, the fans that dislike him, I think, make him uh, uh, make him more satisfied than the ones who love him. <laughs> All right, so I guess the real first question is, if it's not you and it's not the fact that it's Pearl Jam's 20th anniversary or the fact that it was a hot summer, what Maybe is it? Maybe it's Nevermind's, uh, Nevermind's 20th anniversary. Right, yeah, who knows what it is. But if it, if it actually is football-related, uh, give us your guess as to why the Bills have been able to do what they've done so far this season. Well, as, as it is with anything, it's a confluence of many different factors. And I think that, you know, it's a, the number one factor is that the, the team got off to a good start in Kansas City. And the good start came from an offense that's creative and has enough explosive type players that Chan Gailey and his creativity as offensive coordinator has found a way to take advantage of. Uh, after a year that really was a learning curve uh, or a, a learning process for Chan Gailey, uh, made a lot of mistakes as head coach of the Buffalo Bills in 2010, uh, deciding to go with Trent Edwards. You know, he clearly did not see Ryan Fitzpatrick for what we're seeing him to do. You know, the, through three games this year, or even you know his last you know handful of games last season. Um, Chan Gailey saw Trent Edwards as clearly the better quarterback over Ryan Fitzpatrick. Gave him all the snaps last year in training, all the first team snaps in uh, in training camp, and the, he got to start all the preseason games. And Ryan Fitzpatrick was relegated to uh, backup snaps and then thrown into the fire. Uh, the you know, Marshawn Lynch, you know, keeping him around uh, for as long as they did, and you know that maybe isn't uh, Chan Gailey's fault. Uh, as much as Buddy Nicks, but you know the fact that uh, they seem to have preferred other running backs ahead of Fred Jackson. So I know that Chan Gailey is an astute offensive evaluator and play caller, but he really swung and missed on those uh, on those judgment calls last year with those guys. But he got that year behind him. I think he knew what he had. He had an off season to concoct for strategies. Um, and but with the same playbook and the same terminology and the same chemistry, or at least the developing chemistry that he had with Ryan Fitzpatrick after 12 or 13 games or whatever it was last season, they had that to build off of. So it allowed them to get off to a hot start. They go up against you know two teams that um, you know are you know have their flaws, you know have their X factors. Uh, on a weekly basis, get off to a great start to the point where they they had a lot of confidence. And you get a team with confidence, uh, a team that can knows it can come back like it did against Oakland, and I think anything could happen. So uh, they've been able to get lightning in a bottle here a little bit. And 
that is not something to be, uh, you know, to be trivial. You know, that's not a trivial thing right. to have this uh, this hot start because now uh, this, uh, you know, the Bills think that they can do it uh, on a weekly basis. They're going to think there is no uh, deficit that they can't overcome, and you know they're gonna they're gonna be fighting the whole way, and they're gonna believe in each other. They're gonna believe in their quarterback. They're gonna believe in their offense. And they're going to believe that their defense, even though it maybe gives up a big play or, or over the course of the 60 minutes doesn't necessarily play a sterling game, it will come up with a big stop or two uh, that can make the difference. And this is something that will carry over for the rest of the season. You mentioned uh, a couple of mistakes that were made last season with personnel. Do you think that those mistakes resulted in the Bills' decision to cut Lee Evans when they did? And do you think that they have kind of proven that move to be successful with how great the three wide receivers have played so far this season? They have. They've proved that that trade to have been justified. You know, They had enough talent to get by without them. That's evident uh, through the first three games. I think it was even evident after the first game. Uh, but then you're still skeptical because you just think, all right, maybe it's matchups. You know, let's see them go up against a different defense. And they went up against a Raiders defense that wasn't awful. And then they go up against a Patriots defense that is shaky, but still, you know, it's, it's the Patriots. It's Bill Belichick. Uh, you, you can't really look at the numbers of a Bill Belichick defense too much in terms of yards allowed uh, or rankings uh, because, uh, you know, a lot of it is just about you know, doing what you have to to win the game. And sometimes they don't necessarily reflect uh, effectiveness uh, you know, if you're just going to look at the stats of the Belichick defense, he still he runs a very smart game plan. And now that's three, uh, three defenses, three different defenses that the Bills' offense has been able to throw the ball against. And it's been a number of different guys. I think that's the thing that's exciting. And now they're doing it even without Roscoe Parrish. So you're getting David Nelson involved. Uh, on a, one week it might be Donald Jones. One week it might be Scott Chandler. One week it might be Stevie Johnson. Uh, and, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll see something out of Naaman Roosevelt here in the, in the coming weeks. But, right. you know, I think Chan Gailey has faith in his players that they're going to be in the right place and do the right thing. And, you know, I think that they're rewarding his faith. The players are rewarding Chan Gailey's faith in them uh, with the way that they're playing. So I don't know what Lee Evans could be doing that would help this offense at all. I mean, you can't, you can't complain about the points per game, for sure. So let's just, for the sake of our discussion, say Lee Evans' uh, straight-ahead speed maybe opens things up a little bit underneath. I don't know. Uh, but underneath looks pretty wide open to me. You know, David Nelson's getting open. Roscoe Parrish was getting open. Uh, Donald Jones is getting open. Uh, so you know, Scott Chandler's definitely getting open, especially when it matters. So I don't really see what... Uh, what Lee Evans could have added to this offense, and if they knew what their game plan was, and I think it's you know pretty easy to see that uh, that the Bills would recognize that you know Lee Evans is is superfluous to this offense to get something for him. All right, if you were going to nitpick a little bit, I mean it's hard to three and zero, everyone feeling good in Buffalo, but oh uh, no, we can nitpick. <laughs> uh, it would be on the defensive ball, side of the ball, and specifically, it would be in the first half of games. They've been fantastic in the second half of. Every game this year, I mean, Kansas City, they were good all game, but the first half of both the Oakland game and the New England game, the defense 
just didn't even take the field apparently until uh, they were down by 20. How, how do they fix that? Is that coaching? Is that players uh, just making adjustments throughout the game? Like, is, should we be happy about the adjustments, or should we, as fans, be nervous about the the, the slow start? To me, it comes down to individuals uh, at the moment, just based on what we've seen so far. I don't think that there's any scheming or any kind of strategy involved that is going to help Leotis McKelvin not get burned. <laughs> and that's just something that he is going to have to adjust to. He's going to have to cope with that. He's going to have to find a better way. And maybe he does. You know, he rebounded uh, in the second half against, uh, uh, against the Oka. Patriots or, on no, some no, no. plays. Obviously, you know, Ocho Cinco gets behind him. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, you're having depth issues in the secondary. So y- y- there's no, you know... Uh, you know, Lester Hayes is not coming through that door. So <laughs> right. the, the Bills are going to have to find a way uh, to work with the guys that they have on their roster. I think schemes um, seem to be okay. You know, they certainly worked against the Kansas City Chiefs. Of course, you know what's coming, at, you know, for the last two and a half quarters of that game because of the way the, the game got away. You knew what was coming against the Raiders, too, and, and, the, and the Bills really didn't have much luck stopping it, you know, McKelvin especially. But that was a bit of a more balanced team. You do have to still be honest against the run when you have a guy like Darren McFadden or you have Michael Bush in the backfield. Uh, and the Patriots, they just they just sling the ball. But the run defense, I thought, was suspect against Kansas City. It didn't hurt them because of the kind of game it was. But then they come back against the Patriots and played a really strong game and hold uh, Ben Jarvis Greenellis to less than two yards of carry. You know, Wes Welker really inflated the average with a 19-yard run. I think right. there was a Julian Edelman might have had a couple of runs too. Uh, otherwise, I think that run defense uh, looks even more stellar than than the numbers would indicate. So, you know, you can go back and forth on a bunch of guys. You know, we can do the same thing with Sean Merriman. He hasn't shown up yet. Um, you know, Kyle Williams and Marcel Darius obviously are helping that run defense, but they haven't really stood out with anything spectacular, but they're playing solidly. Um, and then, you know, the the secondary. I think that's the big question mark right now because it has been shaky uh, even when healthy, and it's getting thinner and thinner by the week. Bills fans everywhere, are, Sean Marion's play is making Bills fans everywhere pine for the days of Keith Ellison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. See, the thing with Keith Ellison is that uh, you knew you weren't ever going to get anything out of him. With Sean Merriman, you think you still might get lights out at some point. So, but you know, he's one of those guys that I have a tendency to watch. You know, uh, I think on pretty much every play, I'm looking for him because I want to see what he's going to do, and I don't see any exotic pass protections being used against him. It's pretty much one-on-one blocking. And Merriman just seems to run straight ahead. The tackle just kind of peels him, you know, you know, forces him to the outside, and that's the end of it. Now, he got lucky. He got credited with a couple of quarterback hits against Brady, the one where he seemed to try ankle. to take his sock off. Yeah. <laughs> and then I don't remember the other one, but he was credited with two on the game sheet. Um, but still, you know, he's had two games, two of his three games. Well, no, he's had uh, one tackle in the opener. He had three tackles. Uh, in the in game two, but none in the second half, and then he had zero tackles in week three. So this is a guy who's had no tackles in his last six quarters of football. Ouch! You know there was a lot made last week about the fifteen games, twenty one out of twenty two, and I think we all kind of were forced to look back at. I know the the Buffalo News did a good job on Sunday of 
all the losses. And it was the Loyal Malloy game was the last time the Bills defeated the Patriots. And then the next week they crushed Jacksonville. And then the Patriots went on to win the Super Bowl and the Bills didn't. I think one thing we have to keep in mind when we live in Buffalo and we get guilty of this a lot is kind of tempering expectations and managing them. And where do you think the appropriate expectation should be right now for Bills fans after winning these three games, winning the last two at home the way they did, and getting prepared to play what might be a tough stretch of schedule with four of the six games against the NFC East? That's a great question. Uh, yeah, I think you can expect them, too, to be 4-0. and You should. You know, there's no reason they shouldn't be 4-0 you know, on Sunday night uh, because Cincinnati is – they beat Cincinnati last year uh, in Cincinnati. Cincinnati seems worse than last year. And the Bills are better than last year. So, you know, just lot, common sense would say uh, that the Bills win this game against a rookie quarterback. They need to find a pass rush, which they haven't had yet through the first three games. They can get pressure on Andy Dalton and force him to make rookie-type mistakes. Then I think it uh, should be even easier. But season-long expectations, my expectations all along, and this even goes back to before last season was over, was – to sit back and enjoy this team because they're going to be a lot of fun. And I've been saying it for months. Uh, It's just the type of players that they have. They have all these overachievers, these late-round draft picks, undrafted players. Uh, They're good guys. You know, they got rid of most of the jerks in the locker room. You know, the the underachievers, the... um, you know, the, the guys who pouted a lot or the guys that just were always sullen... You know, uh, Aaron Aaron Maben, John McCargo, um, you know, Dante Whitner became, as much as the media loved him, I think he was a distraction in the locker room more than anything else. Um, you know, Marshawn Lynch and all his off-field antics. Um, you know, they got rid of a lot of that stuff. So these were good guys. So that was my, my thing, was just to tell fans to enjoy this team and have fun because win or lose, I think they're going to be fun to watch. And that obviously has, you know, bared itself out through the first three weeks. If they lose that game against Oakland, it's still a fun day and afternoon well spent. Same thing even if the Patriots were to have found a way to win on Sunday. I think a lot of Bills fans would have just been thrilled with the entertainment value of that game. But now you're talking undefeated after four games potentially, then I think that you're, you know, you better be in serious contention for the wild card in weeks 16 and 17. Now, I'm not saying that they're going to go to the playoffs, but they're going to really have to collapse for them not to be in the playoff hunt in December. You know, they're going to have to lose a lot of games in a row. You know, they're already got, we're talk, let's say that they do win against Cincinnati, and I'm not, you know, I'm just saying because I think they're a favorite in that game, and I think they should win it. Right, they should. Then you're looking at what are they going to, you know, let's say they lose four straight. You know, we're still halfway into the season and they're a 500 team. That's still a wild, a wild card contender at that point. Right. And I think that they're not a team that's going to lose five or six straight or, or lose uh, six out of eight or anything like that. So I think we're looking at playoff contender. And, you know, if you, if you can be heartbroken that the Bills don't make the playoffs this year, that's a major step forward for this organization <laughs> right. because they're, the playoffs were a pipe dream, you know, four weeks ago. So if you can be heartbroken on New Year's or, you know, shortly after, you know, we ring in 2012, um, I think that's a good kind of heartbreak. That at least gives you hope 
that you're not following a dog organization for the next, you know, what's it been, 11 years that we're going to do it for another 11? Uh, we mentioned uh, the four of six games against the NFC, but probably more importantly is the AFC. As you kind of look over the landscape of the AFC, do you think the, the AFC playoffs have room for three AFC East teams? Well, normally they do, and I have actually, I thought last year uh, and the year before even, there was a possibility of that because I think that the, we, we knew that the Patriots are, are always the Patriots. The Jets were coming off an AFC championship appearance, and then the Dolphins were just, all, there always seemed to be an X factor. You know, they, they were only a couple years removed from winning the AFC East, and it's, I, I thought it was foreseeable. Uh, that you could have three, but the problem is the AFC North, and to get three in, that means that either the Steelers or the Ravens don't get into the playoffs, and that is just hard to figure. You know, right. you have to you have to almost just pencil in one of those two teams for one of the wild card spots. They're that good. Uh, they're they're good recently. You know, they've gone deep. Obviously, the Steelers were in the Super Bowl last year. Uh, the Ravens have done some serious damage in the playoffs uh, in recent years under uh, John Harbaugh. So those are those are teams that you can't screw with. Um, but I, so I think that the Bills, if they want to get in, they're going to have to finish higher than the Jets. You could write the Colts off, and that would be another factor too. If Peyton Manning were still around, then you're looking at maybe a wild card team coming out of the South because the Texans uh, the Texans always seem to be on the verge. But with Peyton Manning out of the picture, that changes things. Yeah, they're going to win. That probably opens. That at least kills a team uh, out of the playoff race. And you know who knows what happens with the AFC West. You know they're so volatile out there; anything could happen. But you know I think that the team that you're going to have to really be rooting against this year, um, you know, since the Ravens are are out in front, I think you had to root against the Steelers. And uh, you know you got to hope for you know all those teams in the AFC West to. Uh, to split against each other like they always seem to. The sportscasters are here with Tim Graham. You can follow him on Twitter at by Tim Graham. We're talking Bills here. Somehow we burned through 25 minutes already. Um, I wanted to ask you a few Sabres things, but we'll just save that for next time. Uh, quick question: uh, If if things go right and the Bills go to the playoffs this year. What will be the main storyline? And if things go bad and the Bills don't make the playoffs, what will be the main storyline? Well, if they make it to the playoffs, I think that the main storyline, well, there'll be a couple. I think, number one, from a national perspective, you know, the storyline, and it's going to be like this all year. I'm already sick of it. Um, people in Buffalo were sick of it, I think, even last year. Every time Ryan Fitzpatrick's name gets mentioned, you have to Harvard. do the Harvard story. <laughs> right. Uh, but then in general, it's this group of over, this plucky group of overachievers that, you know, nobody wanted these guys. They were passed over so many times in the draft or not drafted at all. Even their head coach, I think you can lump him into that category. Um, just guys who were taken for granted or, or written off. And then they, they get to Buffalo and they play together and then they were written off as a team. So if they can get to the playoffs, that's going to be the storyline that we're going to hear on the national uh, broadcasts and you know in the national publications, but I think that the thing that would have to be most significant would be their offensive line, and I said that uh, on WGR before the the season started. We we did a hypothetical, you know, we did a dream scenario. If the Bills make it to the playoffs, what is going to be the biggest surprise? 
And to me, it was the offensive line because nobody in their right mind before the season started thought that the Bills had a good offensive line. And if it were to hold up to the point where they can get to the playoffs, then I think we'd be looking back. Let's say we get to January and that happens. We're going to be looking back over the previous 17, 18 weeks and scratching our heads over where this offensive line came from <laughs> uh, because it's going to have to be good for them to make it, and it has been pretty great so far. Especially guys like Bell, who in the Chicago preseason game looked like he, he might be worthy of a cut. He was terrible. And, and they've done it against some pretty good pass-rushing team. I mean, you could look on each team, with the exception of the Patriots. They don't necessarily have that star. And they at least had a, uh, an effective guy in Tully Banta Kane over recent years, but they cut him. You know, Tully Banta Kane was not some, you know, he wasn't Lawrence Taylor, but he always seemed to finish with eight, nine, ten sacks. So he was at least productive. Uh, they got rid of him, so there really was nobody to focus on. But uh, Tom Bahali in, in week one and uh, Richard Seymour in week two, and, you know, I think that, you know, I think that they've done pretty well against some teams that I don't think that uh, any any other opponent uh, would would uh, ever take lightly from a pass rush perspective. So yeah, that offensive line is standing up. And then if they don't make the playoffs, I think you know the storyline is going to be that the Bills uh, are giving their fans hope again. And it's a team that will have been embraced um a lot of a lot of popular players on this roster that are easy to root for. And I think that'll that'll carry over to next year. Whether or not they make the playoffs, there's no chance we have a uh, another July 1st type day when we lost Jury and Briere with Ryan Fitzpatrick in this off season. Is there? There's no way Ralph lets that happen, right? <laughs> well, see, this is the thing. Uh, if they don't tie these guys up during the season, uh, and it gets close to the point where uh, they they can test free agency then it's it's tough for a player not to do that right. if not just to satisfy his own curiosity to find out hey what am i worth you know what are other teams going to want you know pay for me i my heart is with the buffalo bills but you know let's say a guy like stevie johnson he might want to see what his hometown 49ers or oakland raiders uh, might want to pay for him um, you know ryan fitzpatrick might be interested in seeing what miami has to has to offer him um, his their agents might be in their ear and convince them that we are going to wait and we're going to hit the open market, and some players just trust their agent to be looking out for them, and and that's really I think any agent worth you know his uh, his license, if you got to the end of the season would say no we're going to see what other teams are offering uh, because that is what's best for his client you know financially you know you're talking about two players who have not made a lot of money. Obviously, Ryan Fitzpatrick has been right. in the league and has made very good money Make compared to what you and I make. But uh, he has not made, I don't have to work for the rest of my life money. Right. His backup uh, makes so, money. Yeah. So I think that the Bills would be wise to lock these guys up during the season if they can, if their agents are open to that, um, because there are no guarantees. The Bills might be convinced internally that we are signing these guys. They will be members of the Buffalo Bills forever, much like... Larry Quinn and right. Dan DePofi and Tom Galasano thought about Chris Drury. You know, they said that during you know throughout the playoffs. Chris Drury will be a Buffalo Saber. Well, uh. the player has to do that too. You know, the player has to be thinking the same exact thing. So you got two different sides, and uh, you can't assume anything when it comes to free agency. So 
yes, there is a chance. Why don't you fill us in on everything you're doing now that you're back? You're done with ESPN since we last talked to you. You said you were going to take on more of like a court-type role at the paper, and I know you got the radio show. Why don't you kind of plug all that and let us know where we can read you and find you and hear you and all that? Yeah, I am a little bit all over the place right now. For the Buffalo News and the print edition, I'm what's uh, called an enterprise writer, which is a fancy term for I write really long stories uh, that require a lot of research. And some of them have to do with sports. Um, For instance, my most recent story was about Kevin Everett and what he's up to, but really that's not a sports story. That was was a story about a guy who just happened to be a, a football player at one time in his life. And what he's uh, doing with himself nowadays, you know, I, I have a tendency to write about, you know, life and, you know, some things uh, that are going on, usually a conflict or a hardship that needs to be overcome. Uh, so, you know, those are really long Sunday stories that I'm doing for the Buffalo News. Uh, I'm also keeping my fingers involved in sports, though. The, the news has me doing uh, video chats with Jerry Sullivan every Friday, usually at 2 p.m., uh, I'm also doing the uh, the regular style chat uh, every Monday morning after Bill's road games while our beat writers are, are coming back from whatever city they've been, uh, the Bills played in the day before. And then uh, Mondays at uh, 10 a.m. on WGR, I'm with Joe Biscalia, and we do uh, do the Extra Point Show where we uh, we review what, uh, what the Bills did uh, in their previous game. So I'm doing a bunch of different stuff, and... I get a chance to come on with you guys. You guys always—it's uh, always a fun show when you come on. When I come on, so hopefully I get to keep doing this. Yeah, definitely. Well, I want you—you you have a special role here tonight. This is the <laughs> last thing, but you're the only guy so far that can come on the show once, then come back on and tell all of our listeners what a handsome devil I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. What were you were wearing a? Chicago Cubs shirt. What were you wearing? I think I was wearing a Saints shirt and the Saints hat. Saints, that's right. I knew it was a sports team, and it was kind of like a – because I remember thinking, boy, that guy is wearing – of course, the Saints recently won a Super Bowl, but I still think of the Saints as, you know, the lovable losers uh, type. So maybe that's what was sticking out when the Cubs – you know, I pulled the the Cubs out of the the cobwebs in my brain there, but – yeah, quite a handsome guy. Yeah. Um, of course, I was about five or six beers in uh, right, at the well, tragically yeah. hip concert when I saw you. So, in fact, you know, memory serves. I might have been. I might have seen two of you uh, at that point. But yeah, that was a fun night. That was my first tragically hip show, and uh, so that was a lot of fun. All right, Tim Graham. Thank you very much. Uh, Buffalo News. Find his big long columns on Sundays. Listen to him on WGR on Mondays. Chat with him. And uh, follow him on Twitter, at BYTimGraham. Thanks a lot, buddy. All right. Thanks for having me on, fellas. Talk to you soon. All right, one last segment here on episode number 44 of the Sportscasters. want to thank all three of our guests today. Dan Wolken from The Daily, Ben Nicholson-Smith from MLBTradeRumors.com, and of course, Tim Graham, Buffalo boy, now. He's, he's fun. He's a great time. That was great. Yeah, I liked him. 
I'm going to walk away from this podcast feeling real good about it, and a big reason is because of the 30 minutes we spent with Tim. Absolutely. I think that went great. All right, one last piece of business for today. Well, two last pieces of business. Where can you find us? Facebook.com slash the sportscasters. Uh, we're going to start doing more with Facebook. Facebook's gonna, Facebook and the blog are going to be a big tie-in to the uh, 12 Days of Christmas thing that we've been teasing. So it might be a good time if you don't like us on Facebook to do so. Facebook.com slash the sportscasters. Also, you can find us on Twitter. We are at sports underscore casters. Don is at Don Like Sports. And I am at Diversity23. Although I do most of the tweeting from sports underscore casters, even though I invite Don to do it. He, uh, he sticks to Don Like Sports pretty much, and I stick to uh, at sports underscore casters. I sometimes accidentally respond to things that you send me from sports casters with the sports casters account, which has got to look really confusing in the timeline. Right. Uh, you can also, uh, I mentioned last week, we'd love to hear from you. Don't be afraid to email us, sportscasters at gmail.com. should be easy to remember, sportscasters at gmail.com. Send us an email. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. Let us know who you'd like to hear on the show. Cause if you, uh, I'll tell you what, pretty much anyone, if they, call, if, they, if they took the time to email me and said that they wanted to hear, I don't know, throw anyone out there, Michael. Chris Berman. They really wanted to hear him on the show. I would do everything I could to try. At least give it a try, right. So I prom- that's a promise to you. So if you take the time to email me, I'll try. Our blog is thesportscasters.blogspot.com. Look for some new content there this week. And our website where you can find all this information is at www.sports-casters.com. Uh, pick four. We had two sets of pick four with the two shows last week. And we did pretty good. We went nine and... Nine and uh, seven overall, but I didn't win either of my bold predictions. So, And I don't think Don did either. No, I didn't either. So if you throw the four bold predictions off and you focus on the games that we picked. It's nine and three. Nine and three. Against good. the spread. It's not bad. Against the spread. It's pretty good. So follow us. We're, we're good at the football games. I promise. <laughs> All right. I uh, won LSU minus five and a half over West Virginia quite easily. I also won Oklahoma State plus four and a half over Texas A&M. They won the game outright. I had Alabama, minus 11.5. That was an easy one, blowout. I had the Broncos, plus 7 over Tennessee. They didn't win, but they only lost by 3. Those were my four victories. I lost the Patriots, minus 9 over Buffalo, and minus 20 over Buffalo. And I said I'd be glad to lose those. Yep. So so be it. Uh, I also had uh, the Steelers. Don and I both had the Steelers, minus 11. That didn't pay off. Not at all. And thanks to a monsoon, <laughs> I never really had a chance for Cam Newton to throw for over 400 yards because the first half was basically running in the slot. Yeah, it was it was ugly. So that was a bust. Uh, Don won the Bills plus nine over the Patriots. He had Miami plus two and a half over Cleveland. He had Alabama minus 11 and a half over Arkansas and Green Bay minus two over Chicago. And his fifth win was Dallas in a pick over Washington. Uh, his losses were, like I said, the Steelers, the Saints minus 12, they almost won by 10, but they actually took points off the board to kneel instead. Yeah, that was strange. Uh, and uh, Kansas City did score two offensive touchdowns. Yep. So let's kick it off this week with the game of the week. Number three, Alabama at number 12, Florida. That's Saturday at one o'clock or at 8 o'clock on CBS. Um, despite logic, I guess I'm going with intangibles here. Uh, logic tells me Alabama's faced – much better opponents 
Florida's kind of beaten up on a bunch of nobodies. Maybe uh, they're not ready for this type of competition. But I, I love the home field advantage in college football, particularly in night games, and the home team's getting a few points. So I'll kind of take a risk and go with Florida plus the four. Interesting. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And that you're right. That could be a real tough place to play. But you know what? Arkansas is a tough place to play too. Yeah. And I just think this Alabama team is just too good. And uh, I'm going to pick them until they say that I, they give me a reason not to. I think that LSU and Alabama are the best two teams in the country. That's definitely going to be the game of the week eventually when they do play. Uh, one of the two of them is going to win the SEC West. And uh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll lay the four points, and I'm going to take Alabama. My host choice this week, making the homer pick. Buffalo right now has only given up three points uh, at Cincinnati. I know it's a road game, but like Tim Graham said, Buffalo beat them there last year. Cincinnati was better last year. Buffalo's better this year. There's no reason to me. I, Vegas seems to know something we don't hear because I think this almost comes off as a no-brainer. Uh, maybe they feel it's a trap game, as people like to call them. But I'll take Buffalo minus three to, to keep focus and win this game. You know, I, I picked the same game, and for a couple reasons. One is because last week I said, show me Bills. They showed me, so I'm going to renew that faith, and I'm going to pick the Bills minus three over the Bengals. And another thing is, like you said, I think if I would have looked today and I would have saw that the spread for this game was minus seven, I think I still would have picked it. Right. So I think minus three is a little bit of a gift. Maybe it goes up over the week. Maybe it doesn't. doesn't matter to us. We make our picks on Tuesday. So I'm going to pick the Bills, minus three over the Bengals. My worldwide leader pick, I'm going to go with the Sunday night game. Uh, that's 820 on NBC. The Jets at Baltimore. Baltimore is only laying four points here. And again, I talked about earlier how I think there's a lot of flawed teams. I think one of the least flawed teams in the AFC right now is Baltimore. I kind of feel like Aaron Schatz had an article a few years back about how there's really no such thing as a, as a trap game. And... That may be true, but I think Baltimore maybe was <laughs> too excited for the Pittsburgh game to play the next week. I I think they're they're a very complete team. They're similar to the Jets, but I think they're better than the Jets. The Jets' one strength last year was their running game, and they can't get that started this year at all. And I think in their run defense hasn't been good, and that's two of Baltimore's strengths. So I'll take Baltimore minus four at home. You know, we do do this separately, but... You know, a lot of reasons this show works the way it does is because of the chemistry that Don and I have, having known each other our entire lives, and sometimes we just think alike. And <laughs> for a lot of the same reasons that Don just laid out for you, I agree. I'm going to take the Ravens minus four against the Jets, and uh, I think Don did a great reason explaining why. So I'll just leave it at that. Okay, my bold prediction this week. As of right now, and like we said, we picked the games on Tuesday. The lines probably changed throughout the week, but that's when we lay our bets on the podcast. So... The 49ers at the Eagles game right now is an even line. I know that's probably because uh, Vic may or may not play. I know Macklin is looking like he won't play. But I'm going to say regardless of whether or not Vic plays or, lot, plays or not, that the Eagles will win. And I'm going to say they win by 10. I know I gave some stats earlier about how the 49ers' defense is better than people might think because of how lousy their overall team has been. But I just think even in a low... I just don't see the 49ers putting up any points. So, I mean, this game could be like a 17-6 to type game. So I'm going to take the Eagles, and I'm going to take the Eagles minus 10. All right, my bold prediction. Look at 
I said it at the top. This prediction was ruined last week by weather. And that was all <laughs> it was. Cam Newton would have thrown over 400 yards against those bum Jacksonville Jaguars <laughs> if it wasn't for weather. The Saints get a shot at the Jaguars this week, and I'm going to predict that Drew Brees is going to throw for over 400 yards against the Jaguars this week. And I think he's going to do it pretty easily. Yeah, so. I think I think the his own the enemy to that or the biggest adversary to that would we'll just be, be the fact ahead. that they get ahead by so much it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, I think uh I think Jacksonville's in for a long day and <laughs> we're going to see a lot at the back of Rasheen Mathis and his hair chasing after Henderson and Meacham and Sproles. Moore Sproles who have all done a great job filling in in the absence of Big Smooth Marcus Colston. And speaking of Colston, I just want to let everyone know that we're only days away from (laughs) my puppy Colston finally coming home. That's right. Maybe he'll be on the show next week. Oh, that'd be fun. (laughs) Episode number 45 is going to be recorded next Tuesday, and I am pumped about it. And sometimes I do not have the interviews sorted out ahead of time, but right now I have two definite interviews for next week, and they're going to be awesome. McLovin, Andrew Pirloff, who who had something come up today unexpectedly, is going to make up for that and be with us next week. And a spot that I've been chasing for months, senior writer at Sports Illustrated, Tim Layden, is going to be on the show, and I couldn't be more excited to have Tim on the show. So those two interviews promised for you next week, episode number 45. Don will cue the hip. Good night. All right.